year I look forward to that wonderful song, Grace in the Sanctuary, here in Advent. It's such a beautiful song. There's just two women, one older and one younger. Not, I'm not referring to two women. Come together and share their joy. What the mystery of God has done in their lives through these two uh, very unexpected pregnancies and, and the two very special children that will soon begin to reshape and remake the world around them. It's really storytelling at its best. When I heard this story, the story of these, these pregnancies, uh, beautiful as they, as they are, I've heard them called by, by many the hallmark of their faith, that yes indeed, especially in terms of, of Jesus, he was surely the product of a special moment between God and Mary, and was truly born of a virgin. Heard that said many times. I've also heard this story defined as a stumbling block for others, any kind of a Christian faith, because as many say, especially our, our younger generations, they say, uh, yeah, right, Boomer. <laughs> born of a virgin? Right. Right. They say with a quick, dismissive eye roll. Well, you both sides of this argument are missing a bit of the point here in this story. It's often the case when it comes to comes to so much of, of scripture, for though the story might not be true in the little literal rational sense, um, to many, I think they will admit it, in this in this day and age, it still contains deep truths that can teach us more about the realities of God and how God might be working in the world than any actual, actual virgin event ever could. That's why, throughout history, after all, the virgin and the special conception motif is so prevalent in cultures and religions all over the world throughout time. These stories, as the old saying goes, are about a dime a dozen. <laughs> not making that up. And quite often they're written well after a person they describe has ceased living. It's yet another way to add a layer of uniqueness, more uniqueness and more, more specialness to their already profound lives. Now, it seems like if the destiny is great, as Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan are always say, then the biology for some reason has to be just a bit greater. For example, the Roman author um, Suetonius, he did it for Augustus. He's telling a tale of his semi-divine birth in which Augustus's mother, Atia, was seduced by the god Apollo. And Augustus was the result of that union. Or think the old and, and barren parents like Sarah and Abraham. And the divine intervention of Abraham wasn't, you know, that would really be a divine intervention of Abraham. <laughs> Oh, that's a whole other story. <laughs> that would shock me. <laughs> so think of Abraham and, and the birth of or Sarah, the birth of Isaac. Think of Hannah. Hannah and Elkanah. Uh, and, and through the divine intervention, who do they give birth to? Samuel, right? There are even more, so many more outside of Judaism and many more divine births from other religions all throughout time. It's Joseph Campbell, the greatest mythologist we've ever seen when he was asked about the prevalence of a virgin birth just in the Greek and Roman traditions alone, without even going outside of that, he says this, oh yes, Leda and the swan 
Persephone and the serpent, and this one, and that one, and the other one. The virgin birth is represented throughout very well. I want a particular uh, special verse story that I love. It's, by the, uh, by, it's told by historian Mark Ehrman in a fantastic book called From Jesus to Christ. If you've never read that, I encourage you to put that on your, your holiday reading list. Well, he recounts the story of a myth about the meddling ancient god Jupiter, or Zeus, take your pick, and a soldier named Amphitryon and his pregnant wife Alcmena. Now in the story, if you're a baby, that's such music to my ears. <laughs> in the story, Amphitryon is away at battle. He's gone, leaving his pregnant wife, she is pregnant, uh, Alcmena behind. So Jupiter, as Airman tells it, I'll try and keep this PG. <laughs> and he casts his lustful gaze down from the heavens upon her. And she's so beautiful and radiant. And he decides that he has to well, have a, be with her, have a moment with her. Know her, as biblical he says. So Jupiter takes human form, disguises himself as her husband, Amphitryon. And tells Alcmena that he's just come home from battle. And of course, she welcomes him. She says, oh, so glad you're back all the arms. And they, well, they head off to do what it is that a couple might do. <laughs> after a long time apart. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're going to spell it out for anyway. PG's rated service, folks. <laughs> and so they're together. And they're doing their thing. Jupiter in disguise, of course, is enjoying himself so much. Then he orders the constellations to stop. Wow. He stops. He stops time. <laughs> he stops time. <laughs> and finally, when he's had all the enjoyment that his godly self could possibly have, well, then he resumes time, starts it up again, and he returns to his heavenly home. A lot of jokes here, so I'm really refraining. <laughs> so that morning, then, after this really long night of frolicking, as fate would have it, the real Amphitryon comes home to find his wife, Alcmena, <laughs> too exhausted to welcome him with the enthusiasm that you might expect after a long time away. But from her perspective, of course, this is completely understandable because she has just spent a very, very long night in what she thought were his arms. Now, remember, Alcmena was already pregnant. But in a way that shows how primitive <laughs> the knowledge of biology and anatomy were in this time, she becomes pregnant again by Jupiter. On that long time stop night, well, she eventually has twin sons. And one is very human, named Iphicles from Amphitryon. And the other is divine. Does anyone know who that other one is? Romulus. No. No, I heard it. Hercules. Hercules from Jupiter. The point Ehrman is trying to get us to understand is that the belief that a, a mortal woman could give birth to a child from a, a god was incredibly plausible. In the ancient world, he writes, it would not be unusual for them to think that some of the great beings who stride the earth, great conquerors like Alexander, for example, may well have been conceived in ways different from us, mere mortals. 
They may have had a divine parent so that they themselves were in some sense divine. Now that appears to fit Luke's story and Matthew's story quite well for this time. Now I recount that myth because today, of course, in Advent, when we, is when we journey into the hills and the humble dwellings of Judea and we peek into a story of another kind of miraculous pregnancy or two, really. First we hear of a child who will be born to the aged and barren Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah. So much like the motif of Abraham and Sarah, this is a miraculous God-inspired birth. And of course our, our second miraculous pregnancy, what is known as the Annunciation, uh, the announcement to the young Mary that she, though a virgin, will conceive a child through the work of the Holy Spirit. It will not just birth a divine son, like, say, Hercules, or like John, but actually the Son of God himself. Son of God himself. Now, two miraculous birth stories. And if you think back to last week when I talked about John the Baptist in relation to Jesus and the problem that he was, so side note for the Gospel writers, given the fact that he's the one that eventually that baptized Jesus and the, and the fact that he was the firebrand forerunner, to Jesus' ministry, well, look how Luke dealt with that here. He just made John inferior to Jesus right off the bat. I find that really interesting. Look at the, look at the, the image I chose. It's like two little men. <laughs> one is bowing to the other, I guess, and you can tell which one's John and which one's Jesus. So John's birth, while still miraculous, is still to two human parents. But not Jesus' though. Is astray from God. John has been subordinated in a very clever way by Luke, uh, well after, of course, both of these people have lived and died. Sounds like it fits in pretty, pretty well with a familiar theme, doesn't it? <clears throat> and we back to our story, our stories that we consider Isaiah, that Tammy just read, which we have to, anytime we're looking at Mary and her divine pregnancy. These two stories are linked together forever is Isaiah was the inspiration for Matthew's and Luke's story of a virgin, of a woman, a woman having a child. And Luke, of course, is interpreting Isaiah's story of the promise of a child to come. So we cannot read these texts apart. They have to be kept together. And if you look at the story that we just heard from Isaiah, we're entering into this, we're kind of peeking into this conversation and a promise of peace and stability. You see, Ahaz... Ruled, what was no, ruled during what was known as the, the Syro-Ephraimite conflict, uh, in which Jerusalem, which he ruled over, was being threatened by various kings who wanted to kill him, and they wanted to remove him. He was in fear, deep fear and loathing. Two things were at stake. One was the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of these kings, and the other was the threat of the end of the promise that a descendant of David would always sit on the throne of Israel. That was a big deal and a big worry. Both of these were at stake. So God breaks into time. And he, he sends Isaiah to speak with Ahaz and assuring him that God will send a sign as a promise that these things will not come to pass. And that Ahaz should have no fear. The sign will be the birth of a child to be born. And this is vital, this is vitally important to a young woman who's already pregnant and will give birth in the near future. The text of Isaiah says a young woman is already with a child, and she will bear a son. His name will be Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. The promise continues, and Isaiah says that by the time the child ceases nursing and shifts to eating curds and, and honey, uh, which is what a toddler, I guess, would eat then, curds and honey. Ahaz says, kingship in Jerusalem will be saved, the threat will be resigned. This is an immediate promise of an immediate, in an immediate time for an immediate crisis. This is the 8th century BCE. 800 years before Jesus' birth. Um, this is not a prophecy. This is not a prophecy of a virgin bearing the Son of God 800 years later. But rather an immediate promise of deliverance and a promise of God's presence in that time. A son 800 years later would have done nothing for Ahaz. It wouldn't have brought him any peace at all. It would have done him no good whatsoever. The confusion, though, so you got that story, the confusion, fast forward, confusion set in when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek in the second century BCE, and what was known as the Septuagint. You might have heard this. Matthew and Luke then later would have used that text, the Septuagint, for their own gospels as Greek was likely their language. So the problem is that the translators took a Hebrew word, Alma, from its Isaiah passage, which means young, marriageable, aged woman with no mention of any kind of sexual experience or sexuality. And they translated it into the word Parthenos, which actually means virgin. It was a poor translation, and it changed the entire meaning. Young woman became virgin, and both Luke and Matthew used the phrase virgin, either intentionally or unintentionally, to build the stories of the birth of Jesus and the virgin Mary, whether this was done to rival other divine births makes a lot of sense, because they were so common, especially such as Caesar Augustus, uh, who dominated and oppressed Jerusalem during this time, or whether this is simply an interpreted mistake, I guess we'll never know. We have our suspicions, but we never know. But either way, we know the interpretation is incorrect, and theology has done very little to correct it all this time. So it is important that we keep the story of Ahaz and the birth of a child to a young woman, but the story of Jesus and his own supposed birth to a virgin. We have to keep those together, but all too often, they're not. They're not kept together. And more often than not, our story from Luke, or its counterpart in Matthew, the only two places, besides the Koran, find that interesting, besides the Koran that mention the Annunciation or of this idea of a virgin birth is left to stand on its own. All too often it's left to stand on its own as literal and foundational account of how Jesus uh, entered this world and truly once it was enshrined in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and recounted for centuries right to today and so many churches right this very morning, it still is the litmus test all too often to determine who a real Christian is. And who a real Christian is not. This is evident to me every time someone finds out what I do. <laughs> and I don't lie about it. Often I do. I say, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, importing. <laughs> I'm the stands. He was importing and exporting for Bandelay Industries. He never really told people what he did. That's kind of me sometimes. But let's say I do. Let's say I, I admit it at a coffee shop or met a brew pub. And, um, and they find out what I do. And they start needling 
start needling me on my theology a little bit, and they, they always seem to discover that I'm one of those hell-bound, aggressive <laughs> theological thinkers pretty quickly. And the question always comes, well, two things, either the resurrection or it always comes to the virgin birth. Always the question, the great gotcha moment, the knockout punch to expose me for the blasphemer that I am. <laughs> okay with that, actually. <laughs> they always say, we, believe in a virgin birth, right? And often it's so I, I can feel their eyes, kind of boring, intimate, salivate. Did <laughs> you get that, Carl? Salivate. They're waiting, just waiting for proof of my unbelief, their chance to tell me I'm going to hell. Every time I say to them, do I believe that God literally sent his spirit to have relations with the young girl Mary and that she conceived a child and nine months later, Jesus was born as the Son of God? No. No, I don't. And eyes always go wide at this, at this point. It's like shock. And strange sounds are made. <laughs> okay, I'm having a little fun, but this isn't that far from reality. Gurgling and stuff. Like, huh? And then they go, but you're on. Before I can let them get the word out, minister. I go on. I go on. I, do I believe in the deep meaning and symbolism of the idea of a lowly, hopeless, oppressed peasant from an awful beaten track, kind of place such as Galilee, being blessed with the opportunity to birth the hope of God into a world in which the only sons of God are the mighty and the powerful, the emperors and the kings, the oppressors, and those who reap injustice upon people just like a young Mary? Then, yes. I believe fully in the power of the virgin birth in the fullest sense, and I find meaning in its amazing beauty and truth, and ultimately in the divine hope that the story espouses. But literally, no, I don't believe it, nor do I feel a need to believe it. I don't find it all that helpful for spreading the word of love in the world, which is the crux of the gospel anyway. Amen. Now, let me explain a little bit more. Metaphorically and symbolically, I'm a huge believer, and I crave what this story offers us, the hope that the presence and the mystery of God can spring up anywhere, at any time, in anyone, and speak a challenge yes. to the world that can truly change things. The hope that a God consciousness of peace and love can rise at any time, even in places where the world would not expect that presence to arise, not among the rich and the powerful as a soul, often believe, but rather among a poor young woman in a town that was never meant to be recorded in history, and a young boy with an amazing mother who instilled in him visions of justice and love and equality for all people. I don't need the happenstance of a biological intervention to see God at work in this story and in the person of Jesus. I just don't need Jesus' biology to be greater than his destiny. For this world to be world changing, for this word to be world changing and life altering, for this story. I love the story, and I'll, I'll keep singing. I'll keep singing, Brown Yon Virgin, until the day I die. We're going to sing it just a bit. Because it's such a beautiful, hopeful vision, but it's not going to make me love any deeper. It's not going to make me love any deeper, show more compassion, 
draw more empathy and speak out more for inclusion. Jesus' life does that for me. His example does that for me. His passion for sisters and brothers to live the fullness of life does that for me. And that's what I wait expectantly during this Advent season. The experience of celebrating his birth to the special mother, really special mother, who will instill in him the values that will make him great to this day, the values that will bring empires, empires to their knees, the values that will inspire charity to this very day that will change the lives of billions, the values that will lead prophets to give their lives for justice, the values that can have and can and have and will continue to change this world for the better, the values that made some say long ago in those ancient times that dang it, this life, this compassion, love and vision for a just world that he had were so dang great that surely, surely this has to be the son of God. In other words, his destiny was already so great, so amazing, that his biology simply a way of catching up and saying that this is no ordinary human being. This can only be God. Still going to hell. <laughs> Usually the person's left by now. Here he goes, he's getting out of here. It's going to hell anyways, don't waste your time. What a beautiful story, isn't it? You missed it, Sarah. Yes. <laughs> what a beautiful story that we tell every time during this time of the year, every year. Because we tell it, we live it. Because we tell it, we live it. We, we help keep the amazing life that Jesus lived and what he dreamed for the world alive and well for another year. We need this story. Sorry, super uber progressive people that want to throw out all the versions speak. We need it. We need this story that the hope that and the hope that God is still active in the world and the lives of people turning the world just a, a little more right side up. And like Mary, we need this story to remind ourselves as well that God is active in our lives, answering our struggles and fears with a presence, Emmanuel, that brings comfort and peace and confidence as it did for her. I guess in the end, if you take anything from this, you could say that we're all Mary, right? But we all have the special God presence that is a part of us already, and we all birth God into the world every time we act with compassion and love. And this season, this Advent and Christmas season, before the start of another year, well, it's a wonderful time to remind ourselves of that fact so we can birth God more and more and more in the coming year and all that comes to pass. Amen. Let's stop talking about it. Let's sing about it. Let's sing a, a verse. I know it's early. You don't usually sing this song until Christmas Eve, right? So we're just going to get a verse in just to wet our, wet our whistle. There's other stage for what's coming. Uh, let's just say seated. Sing a gently, silent night, holy night. I wish you a continued blessed advent, my friends. Amen. Amen. Amen.